You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hey, everybody, it's Rick Bassman here on Talking Tough part of the amazing two-man power trip podcast empire, uh, hosted and produced by the equally amazing Ian Barkley and John Pozorowski. Um, uh, thank you, Ian and John. You guys have my deepest gratitude for making this happen and always like to give you uh, the due that you deserve. Um, quick uh, quick weather report. It's uh, about 74 degrees and clear and sunny blue skies, breezy here on Maui today. Um, I always mention the uh, the house first because everyone knows I, I love my four maniacal little pit bulls to death. It's Ramon and Gogo and Eos and Dennis and I mentioned for a couple reasons. Um, uh, mainly, it's that we live up here in the remote wilderness of Maui, and if a car comes anywhere like within half a mile of this place, it's a big event, and they will start barking. So always, as always, apologies in advance if you guys hear a big explosion in the background. Nothing I can do about it. Um, the other, the other reason I mention it is my, my pups are the uh, the poster children, the, the spokes dogs, if you will, for the Bully Dog Rescue Coalition. Uh, it's a nonprofit pit bull uh, rescue worldwide that we benefit this amazing four ladies, Linda Blair from The Exorcist being one of them. These four ladies um, do more for pit bulls than anybody else on this planet through their land-based rescues. You can support them at bullydogrescue.com. All right, I think... Um, that, that's enough plugging for one day. I'm incredibly psyched up and admittedly a little nervous about my guest today. And, you know, most of you out there know me or know about me now. And, you know, I'm known as this guy who has traveled and, and, and cavorted and fought with and made best friends with the world's toughest men. And, you know, I, I like to think that I can hang with anybody that I can relate on a equal level to anybody, but I, ha I have to admit, I'm a little intimidated by today's guest, and I, I will get to that in a moment, um, because I'm not even gonna say his name yet, you, you're gonna know him and, and fall over, or you're not gonna know him, but by the time the interview's over, I think you're gonna be a converted fan and maybe fellow intimidated person as well. Um, the, the show we're on is Talking Tough, and, and I want to read the tagline for a reason. It's going to segue into the introduction of our guest here. Talking Tough is about the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climbs back to the top, to life. Now, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of getting to speak briefly now on a couple of occasions with our guest today. And I, we discussed the theme of the show. And you guys know who, who's been on the show and who's coming on the show. I mean, the top Hells Angels in the world. One of the guy who used to run the Crips Street Gang. Um, it, it, people like the, the uh, lost boy of the Sudan, probably the most prominent soldier from the Sudanese conflict. Guys that have really been through it. Uh, Ken Shamrock, who we all know, that have hit the bottom, flamed out in spectacular fashion. The guy we have on today, he has done more crazy stuff probably than any human being that I'm aware of. And when I discussed the theme of the show with him, he's like, hey, that's great. That sounds like fun. But I I've, I've haven't fallen. I've, I've not been at the bottom. And and it kind of blew me away, A, because I thought every person has been there. And, and B, because I thought the guy who's done what this guy has done had to have crashed and burned far worse than, than the rest of us. But he hasn't. And I think that's a blessing. And I'm going to talk to him about that when I, when I bring him on and we'll find out how he stayed uh, above the fray. Um the guest name, and I'm not introducing him just yet, but I want to put his name out there for because I'm, I'm teasing it too, too long. His name is Robert Young Halton. And in addition to being, this guy's got more colorful nicknames, the Mullah of Mayhem, the world's most intrepid traveler, the greatest living adventurer, and it goes on and on. And, and I believe all the names are, are well-earned. He's also an author. And you know, there are those of us who I think um, love, admire, idolize uh, rock and roll stars, movie stars, whatever it may be. Um, you know, and, and I like music and movies as as well as anybody. Um, 
you know, love, love to spend the night with a beautiful woman, whatever it is. But probably my favorite thing to do is to read. And I, I love books that are real, that are based on, on real life. And Robert Young Pelton wrote a book many, many years ago called the, I actually went upstairs and pulled this down from my bookshelf. It's sitting in front of me right now, which is, I think, partially why I'm so excited and intimidated. It's called The World's Most Dangerous Places. And this book is, is torn to shreds because I don't know how many times I've been through this book over the years. I pick it up. And I feel like reading a bit every now and then. And that's been going on for 20 years. Uh, he's also the author of a lot of other amazing books. And, and we'll talk about that. So uh, enough with the long-winded and uh, meandering introduction. The Our guest today is my favorite author of all time, a guy that I've admired from afar for decades now and now have the pleasure and good graces of having here on Talking Tough. I'm pleased to, uh, to introduce uh, Robert Young Pelton. Hey, Robert. Hey, Rick. How you doing? After that intro, I'm just going to shut it down right now. So I, I can't tell. All right. Podcast things. is over. Interview's done. <laughs> anyway, well, good, good talk checking with you. Yeah, man. I'm really, really glad to have you on the phone today. And uh, and this and this is cool. And I, I think I've said about really all I, I can say today. Um, you have you have more what people would refer to as tall tales, I think, than, than anybody I know. The difference being your tales are all true. Um, but, man, but, you know, you, you are the world's greatest adventurer. That I, I have no doubt. But man, you started as, as a copywriter, an, an advertising guy. Is that right? Well, actually, I started as a sweeping a floor when I was 13 years old in a Santa Claus ornament factory, but that doesn't sound very sexy. Um, well, I have to tell you, man, being in, being in the ad business is decidedly non-glamorous and not very sexy also. <laughs> well, How did you get to be who you are? Well, the reason I, I started in the ad business as my first respectable career is uh, I took an aptitude test in high school. And uh, that, along with the interest test, uh, gives you sort of the results of what you'd be good at. And I was only good as a an adventurer, an astronaut, and an advertising man. So that's a very limited spectrum <laughs> of jobs. And I had no idea what an advertising man was. And uh, I lived in a car when I was 16, and I picked fruit. And I said, look, you know, I, I need to get out of this. So I literally drove to um, Toronto, Ontario, and started calling the presidents of all the ad agencies, starting with A, asking for the guy whose name was in the book, being told that half of them had died, you know, 30 years ago, um, and said, hey, I was in high school. They should have said I should be an ad guy. I want to meet with the president, and he can give me a job. So literally three people said yeah come on down and uh i talked to uh, these gentlemen who ran large ad agencies and i explained that i'd taken an aptitude test and i guess they admired my moxie or whatever you want to call it and uh one gentleman bob mackler who was uh, very famous he had a doctorate in theology and ran bbdo uh said you know yeah you got a lot of talent a lot of skills but you have no experience and I said, well, give me a job and I'll get experience. And he said, I, I can't do that. And uh, he said, but I started in the mailroom. Uh, maybe you should go down there. So I went down to the mailroom and immediately demanded that they give me a job. And he said, well, how much experience do you have being a mailboy? And I said, none. I said, sorry. So <laughs> I went to Merrill Lynch, worked as a mailboy for six months, came back, worked as a mailboy being you know, bored out of my mind. Came back to the mailroom at BBDO and said, okay, I've got experience, give me a job. And the guy <laughs> admired my, um, I don't know what the, what the play word is, but sort of uh, unrelenting uh, earnesty, gave me a job. And then the second day I was the mailboy, I walked back up to Bob Mackler's office. Okay, I'm a mailboy, uh, give me a job as a copywriter. So he said, well, not that fast. So um, what happened was I was in the mailroom, I read all the mail. And they were trying to pitch this new product and they weren't having much luck. And I read all the emails, not emails, but memos back and forth. And I went out to the supermarket. And it was a, some kind of junk food product. And I started talking to housewives. And I said, well, why would you buy this? And what don't you like about that? And, and I wrote a marketing plan on, my, on an Underwood typewriter. And I dropped it off at uh, the vice president's desk. And I didn't hear anything. Then I started getting dirty looks from everybody because I delivered the mail. It's quite a large agency. And finally, I said to one of the copywriters, I said, what the hell's going on? He said, well, we had a meeting, 
And uh, Bob Mackler, who was the creative vice president, said, hey, how long have we been working on this project? And they said, I don't know, three, four months, something like that. I said, have we got any good ideas? And he goes, eh, nothing really good. So he passed around this rather crude document, and they flipped through it. He said, oh, that's pretty good. That's, that's kind of good. That's good. He said, yeah, you know who wrote that? He said, well, the damn mailboy. And you know how much the mailboy makes? He makes a dollar an hour. So <laughs> I was used to embarrass the creative department. And uh, shortly thereafter, I became a copywriter. So that's how I became a copywriter. Wow. Okay. I, I, I have I was, so I was seven, many. I, I should mention I was 17 at the time. So that's what, of course. I, I have so many takeaways and so many questions from, from what you just told us. And and I want to apologize to you in advance also. I drive my guests crazy because I can hear you're very, you're very linear and very logical. And I, I like to think I'm like that at times, but I'll, I'll tend to jump around. So please feel free to interrupt me and shut me down at any moment. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a bunch of comments I want to make and questions I want to ask on, on, on what you just said. Um, First of all, you mentioned that you you showed aptitude for for three things, and I and I believe they all started with A: advertising, astronaut, and adventurer. And yeah. it, what, what the first thing that jumps out at me, and and, and I want to save getting into the adventuring as we move on here, because that's that's one of the things I'm really excited to talk with you about, and our listeners will love. But Robert, astronaut, adventurer, advertising. Even though the advertising story is an amazing one. You chose by far the most boring of the three things, didn't you, to start your professional career? And it, it amazes me that you chose that and ended up where you ended up. That's all. I, I had to point that out. Well, let, let's have a reality check here. First of all, I was Canadian. There are no, there were no astronauts in Canada, so that was a no-go. Fair, fair enough. Secondly, adventurer, if you look in the newspaper or on the monster.com, there just aren't no such thing. Not, as not a lot of jobs for that, huh? Well, you, so you're going to tell me... You mentioned you demanded your job with the kind of balls that you had. I, I can't believe you didn't get yourself to Russia and demand a spot on the Soyuz, but that's all right. I get it. <laughs> no, the, you got to remember before that I went to a school that was famous for killing 12 kids. It was a survival outdoor school. I, I had no fear. I mean, I had no concern about asking a, a 50 year old vice president of an ad agency for a job. And when I was in that school, I used to sell chickens door to door <laughs> Because we raised animals and processed them. And then we had to go out in the winter and sell, you know, the bacon, the ham. Uh, and I literally learned people skills from selling meat door to door sure, as a 10-year-old right. kid in the it dead of winter. Sense. So you always yeah. did what you had to do to get by. Um, is, that, is that a fair statement? Or is it just stuff that no, you... I, um, well, let's, let's, let's be crystal clear about something. Mm -hmm. I, had, I knew I had to shape my 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 focus i had to focus what i wanted i had to test myself that what i was looking to do had some kind of benefit at the end right i mean i i could have dreamed of being a rock star i could have wanted to be uh i don't know a, like you said a, a, an astronaut but that wasn't going to be that so i had to shape and focus uh, what i wanted and i used to give people a quiz like if you know, people say, oh, if only I had a million dollars. And I said, well, how would you get a million dollars? You know, you get a million dollars, you'd solve a problem that was going to cost somebody a hundred million, you know, so, or, or, you, or you'd build something and, and it would grow to a million. So I was never a, a dreamer, you know, I was very pragmatic. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. So I, I, I understand that. And that is great focus, especially because what you ended up in, I, I know from the outside looking in, it might look wild and unstructured, but I also know from reading pretty much most or not everything of what you've written that that you always do have a plan, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Um, you, you mentioned a moment ago that you have no fear, and I, I have those two words written in my notes to talk to you about because I absolutely have that that uh, impression of you. No fear is that something that is just imprinted in you from birth or is that something that you develop as you go along? Well, I, I can't claim that I know. I, I remember as a child, I used to play chicken with cars by running out behind the mailbox to see if they could stop in time. And, and my parents didn't think that was a very good idea. I used to, I used to walk out the door and the police would find me and drive me back. <laughs> so yeah, maybe I'm missing one of those genetic strands, you know, that you're supposed to have. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I'm not foolhardy, you know. I, I don't do uh, things that cause damage to myself. And I, and I know when I reach my limit. So 
uh, it's a combination of maybe learning things the hard way. Uh, you know, when you're kind of uh, fearless, you, you quickly learn what can get you in trouble and what, you, what can get you by. And the other thing is, is it's not so much fear, right? It's, it's knowing the difference between danger and fear. And this is what I point out to people over and over again. Usually the things we fear are not the things that are going to kill you. You know, you, you can be afraid of heights. You can be afraid of snakes. You can be afraid of sharks or whatever. That's not going to kill you. You know, the thing that's going to kill you is that hamburger or that not looking left when you should have looked right in line and crossing the street or, you know, very mundane things that people aren't afraid of, but that can kill them very quickly. Yeah, and there's, there is a definite distinction between the two, isn't there? Well, yeah. where, where would one's girlfriend or, or wife fall in there? I would say they're not going to kill you, but then again, I could change my mind on that pretty quickly. Well, choose partners that, that fill in the blanks that you don't have, right? You know, a partner is a real partner, not, not a competition or a, you know, a, a romantic quest so much, but as somebody that can work as a team with you. Well, well said. A very healthy way to look at it. And, and you are, I know we're about the same age here. Um, you, you've had an unbelievably off-the-charts adventurous life. Uh, you face some incredibly dangerous situations, and I absolutely want to get into some of that, if you will. But here, here you are today, health, healthy and, and happy and successful. Is that a fair description? Yeah, and, and I'm just starting. I mean, I, I have never felt that I was going to have a trajectory that had a sort of an upward climb and then a flat spot and then a downward arc. You know, I've always looked at what people that are older than me do at and do well. And, and sort of manipulated my course towards that uh, that plan. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. Uh, you know, to um to jump ahead for a moment, just to give our for for the listeners who may not yet be familiar with you, to give them some perspective on on what the world is like for for, for the guys. Not only been to the world's most dangerous places, but prob probably the world's foremost expert on them. A couple of quick questions: How, how many countries? have you been to do you know uh i stopped counting like at 130 because it didn't seem like it made much difference past that point no five man i've got 55 and i thought that was a lot wow all right well, so it's, it's not about you know it's about women it's not about quantity it's about quality you know it's it's uh country counters don't impress me right but a guy that spent 20 years in somalia i, I want to talk to that guy so it's not about that it just happens i go through a lot of countries in wars, you know, maybe four dozen, something like that. But again, I, I've never four, really four wars. Right, taken so, my shoes off and counted. No, no, I hear, I hear you. Um, you know, for for myself, Robert, like, you know, I, I I like to think the most dangerous situation I was in, I was with two of my fellow pro wrestlers doing a humanitarian tour of of, of the DRC, the Congo, which, which you and I both know is far from democratic. Stands for Democratic <laughs> Congo, um, yeah. and and we had. Um, we had like 14 of our own private Kalashnikov wielding guards. And, you know, for us, it's like, wow, how, how cool are we? Cause we have this and look how dangerous this is, but that that's light. I mean, L I T E light, isn't it? Compared to the world that you've seen and you've experienced. Yeah. I mean, you know, my focus is, is actually combat with rebel groups and jihadis and uh, insurgents. So I'm literally in the midst of fighting with small groups that, at the time, probably nobody's ever heard of, you know. So, like, I was just in Libya, you know, on the front lines. And, and most people don't even pay attention to a country like Libya because they just assume it's always been a war. I was thinking and, of going there for Hanukkah this year. Okay. Well, <laughs> oh, man, sorry, I mean, ahead. I enjoy I'm it. sorry. Go ahead, please. No, but it's a very modern, affluent place. And uh, it's also at war. So, I mean, you're, you're seeing more and more of this around the world where, there aren't really wars where there's two people lined up shooting at each other and wearing different colored uniforms. You're, you're seeing conflict inside civilized areas, whether it's 9-11 or whether it's, um, you know, people that find themselves on a subway and suddenly blow, somebody blows himself up in London. I mean, you know, this is the new reality of war. And, and you've, you've not only seen it, you've, you've been in the midst of that. I know that from, from reading so much about you. You, you must have literally 
thousands of stories that most people would never experience one of in a lifetime. To, um, for, for some color and illustration, it, is it even remotely possible for you to tell like the craziest thing you've ever experienced in your travels or one of them? Well, I, I, I don't do superlatives because it sounds like, you know, one is more horrific or less <laughs> horrific than the other. They're all horrific events for the people that experience them. But, um, you know, what I try to tell people is that usually the things that happen to me that are the most horrific are actually when I'm not in a war zone. And then I'll give you an example. So, you know, I was in Uganda, which no one would consider to be a war zone. And I had just flown in from Afghanistan and I hadn't had a drink in a month or something like that. I hadn't read a newspaper. I mean, the Taliban were running the country. So it was, it was pretty much being back in the 12th century. So all I wanted was to just sit in a nice hotel on the patio and have a cold beer. And uh, I went to a place called Speaks Hotel. And uh, I met up with a friend who was supposed to you know, meet me for a beer. And we were just going to sit there and, and shoot the breeze. And I sat there and I sat there. And then it get dark. And then uh, some kid came up behind me and I'm on the patio that's on street level and he leaves his backpack uh, underneath my table and I don't really think about it. I tell the waitress, Hey, this guy had a oh, shoot. Right. backpack. And, uh, so she picks it up, moves it over to the side. And, uh, then I think, I wonder where my friend is. So I get up from the table. I still have a beer sitting there. I think I'm on my third or fourth beer now. And I go to my room, which is right above where I'm sitting. It's sort of an overhang. And all of a sudden, wham, this, this huge explosion. You see sparks and smoke. And I'm like, shit, that's a bomb, right? So I go downstairs with my camera. And uh, I don't see anybody. There's nothing. No chairs, no people, nothing. It's like this white tile sort of empty patio now. And I, and I was baffled by that idea. Because I'd just come from it, and there were all these people sitting there eating and drinking. And then I, and then I saw this sort of sheet of red coming across the tiles and i realized that everybody had been blown back against the, the wall of the hotel or out into the street and all the furniture the sort of rattan furniture was sticking in these people so there were people with pieces of furniture you know stuck through their chest and their arms and their legs so i got my friend who was a medic and i said okay let's let's deal with this so we started doing triage and you know, so, so you're you're calm you're calm through all this yeah, well, what do you want to do? Run around in circles? No, no, I, I hear you, but I think most people would react by running around in circles. So I just, I'm uh, just well, no, I mean, you have to save lives, so you, yep. you get to work. Um, so my friend who was a medic, a former Green Beret medic, um, we started triaging these people, and we were stopping cars and putting people on the back of trucks, telling them to go to the hospital. And, and finally, after about five or six people, he said, look, I'm going to go to the hospital, and I'm going to help the doctors. So while we're saying that, Boom, another explosion goes off just up the street. I'm like, okay, go to the hospital. I'm going to check out what that is. So I grab a local security guy and I commandeer his truck and we drive up to this, um, it's called the Blue Nile restaurant. And it's pitch black. You can smell the explosives, right? It's like a gunpowder smell. So we go in the back and it's just very dim light. But what had happened is that somebody had left another, it was actually like a duffel bag. <clears throat> and the employees had taken it back and were opening it up and it went off in their faces. So uh, one person was just blown to small chunks of like white meat. Uh, the other person, I see, I think she was alive. And then the other person was, so her body was like jelly, but her legs were, had been severed. And I said, okay, let's, let's get this gal onto the truck and um, see if we can get her to the hospital. And I remember yelling back to the driver saying, don't forget her legs. And I don't know why I thought that was important to, to put her legs on the truck with her uh, because she was still mildly conscious when we put her on the truck. And then he's saying, well, how do I carry the legs? And I'm like, hell, I don't know. Get a blanket or something. So I got a blanket. We put her legs on the blanket and put her on the truck. And off she went to the hospital. So I go back to after we get the casually started out. I go back to Speaks Hotel and I'm literally covered with blood, right? I've been picking up pieces of people and I look like something out of a horror film, but I can't see myself because I'm, I don't have a mirror. So the, the chief of police shows up and uh, again, all I want at this point is another cold beer, right? It's been a long night. So, and I have to catch a bus up to 
South, or to the, what is now South Sudan, but Sudan in the morning, it's a 12 hour bus ride that leaves at five or four. So I'm completely soaked with people's innards and blood and whatever. And the police chief walks over and he says, hi, you know, I'm the chief, blah, blah, blah. What's your name? And he said, how did you know both these explosions were going to happen? I'm like, what do you mean? I don't, I didn't know anything. I just, I was sitting here having a beer and somebody uh, put a bomb under my table. Right. And I said, yes, but how did you know about the second explosion? I said, it, it went off. He said, yes, but you're the only person that was at both explosions. And I'm like having this surreal experience thinking this guy's actually accusing me of being the bomber. Right. And then I think, oh shit, I got to catch a bus. And my wife's going to read about this and she's going to think I'm one of the casualties. Right. So I go in and again, I'm completely covered with blood. And I ask the guy for a piece of paper and a pen and I write, you know, you'll, you'll hear about an explosion tomorrow. Don't worry. I'm fine. I have to go to South Sudan. I'll be out of touch for two or three weeks. Right. So I tell him to put it to the fax machine. So I go up the next day, I take a bus up to Gulu, and then I take uh, rebel transportation up to the front lines where Joseph Coney is and the SPLA is fighting. Literally do not bathe or change my clothes for three weeks. And I'm coming back and I'm sitting next to a nurse who tells me that she had done a bunch of secret tests on pregnant women. And Uganda at that time had an 80 percentile of HIV AIDS incidences in pregnant women. And I'm thinking, gee, mm. I just spent <laughs> three weeks yeah. covered in guts. And then I got back and I called my wife and I said, hey, hey, so I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. Then I said, well, what's, what's the big deal? And I said, you didn't get the facts? She said, no, it was just a blank piece of paper. The guy in the hotel had faxed the wrong side of the paper to my wife. So anyway, that's just one story. So... <laughs> One of wow, you know, I'm I'm listening and and taking this in and really trying to in, envision being there, man. And it is quite an evocative vision. Um, okay, so you were near that bomb that went off. Um, I was right above it, but it was put under my table. Okay, yeah, that's 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 pretty close. I would say. How, how have have you had? I'm going to ask questions that I think there there sound like simple questions, but I think people will want to know. How many times could you even estimate would you say you've been near death through your travels? Well, you can't. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's actually not appropriate to say that you're near death because we're all near death. You know, it just depends on how many years we have. Uh, when, you're, when you're in combat, there's a lot of ordnance flying around, you know, so like a, a shell lands here, bullet goes by there. You know, these, these are sort of things you can measure. Um, I mean, for example, I was just in Libya and... I went up to the front lines, and I was in, interested in drones, right? Because they're using drones to kill people there. And uh, so I'm on the front lines, and as I drive out, they're dropping mortars around us. And mortars are pretty common. You know, they make a bang, but they're usually, you know, 50 yards off, 100 yards off, something like that. So we get into the house, and the drone's flying around. And these mortars, you can almost time them, like every 25, 30 seconds. And they're getting closer and closer. And, the, and one of the guys I'm with goes out to the front and then wham, they drop one on him and just miss him. And I'm like, okay, they're watching us. And so I say to these kids, and I say kids because they're all in their 20s or whatever. I said, do you guys have your cell phones on? And they're like, yeah. And I said, turn your goddamn cell phones off because you can use GSM tracking, you know, to find out where people are. And I said, okay, they're, they're targeting what they call bracketing. They're bracketing the house. Uh, within the next two to three minutes, they're going to be dropping mortars right on this house. So I think we should head right to the literal front lines, like where people are shooting at each other, because it's actually safer there. So they look at me, and they look around, and they go, well, no, this house is pretty strong, and blah, 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 and then wham, another mortar. And, it's, and then another one blows out the window. And I said, you know, honestly, guys, the next one's going to be right. And as I stepped in, they wanted me to sit in the kitchen, and I said, no, I'm going to go over here and literally as i stepped behind the wall a mortar came right in the living room and exploded so wow. i'm thinking shit why did i believe these guys i should have just kicked their asses out of there and said look i've been more wars than you'll ever be in and let me tell you what's happening right now so the funny thing is is that when i go to these places the kids look at me like oh okay what should we do and i'm like wait you're fighting the war not me well you know uh 
it's hard to know how to how to even comment on that now, I can tell you Robert the, the places I've gone again no nowhere you know near the the number or, or depth to what you haven't even come close to experiencing that but my, my attitude in travel you know you go places like Mexico City or New Orleans even that people consider dangerous and but my thoughts always are you know, as long as you exercise whatever degree of intelligence and awareness you're capable of, you know, things, things will probably be okay. And I, I want to ask for your advice on something in a moment for myself and, and for the listeners both. And it, it brings me to you know, an incident a few years ago. I was in Las Vegas at a African business development conference. And we're at one of the five-star casinos. And I got into a conversation with these two seemingly very nice gentlemen, one from one from Ghana, one from Zambia. And I learned it's their first time ever in the United States. And I asked them, so what do you think of Vegas? And they said, oh, well, the, the hotel and the casino, they're very nice. I go, well, what about the rest of Vegas? And they go, oh, no, 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 we're not leaving the hotel. And I said, why not? And they said, because it's too dangerous. And mm. Yeah, I, I thought it was ironic, but I I guess I understand at the same time. You got two guys from Africa, and, and you know you've been all over Africa. I've been to a few countries there, but we, we all know what the average person's impression of Africa is. It's it's dark and it's dangerous. Don't go. Now you've got two African gentlemen in Las Vegas afraid to go out into the Las Vegas night. What what, well, what do you say to people? Break, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's break that down. You and I can go to Vegas, go to the nastiest parts of Vegas and feel quite comfortable, even if they're nasty, right? Because we yes. have a cult cultural sense of who we should talk to and who we shouldn't talk to, right? Right, but right. If, if you go to New Orleans or places where tourists hang out, Las Vegas, they can spot a mark a mile away, right? By the way, Absolutely. And, and those are exactly who they target because they're going to say, hey, man, you want to see free show or you want this or, hey, I lost my wallet, da 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 uh, what time is it? Come on over here. You know, it's, and, right. And they're right because they don't have the cultural sensitivity. Now, you and I in the backwoods of Kinshasa are going to get into trouble. We're going to end up in some titty bar that gets raided by the police and get beat up and taken, you know, into the jail cell and, and forced to pay like 200 bucks to get out. And the point is, is that sometimes places are dangerous for people because they can't read the street, right? And not that anything would happen to these nice gentlemen, but I'm just saying that they read these things before they come. Like, you remember the Germans used to be attacked in Florida, and that was just a fluke, right? But remember German oh, tourists? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Sure, sure. Well, they issued a travel warning for German tourists. Like, don't get off the freeway. You know, don't do this, don't do that. There's, I remember this well. Yes, of course. Yeah. And so they built up this whole idea that there's – large urban swaths of bloodthirsty savages waiting for nice German tourists to buy gas or ask directions. So it's a bit, a bit of mythology, but it's also a sense of like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Right? I have no, <laughs> no way to find my way out of here and I'm going to get screwed, you know? So work within your comfort zone. And, and the, the simple lessons of safety are like have never changed hang out with the locals find somebody who lives there don't go up to people who come to you right You're right reach out to people that ask a genuine question saying you know if you were to go to a restaurant what would be the best restaurant you would go to that guy will take you to that restaurant right i mean the 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 engagement with locals in strange places turns out to be probably the most rewarding thing you can do so, so yeah, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about that. Uh, and, and I whole, wholeheartedly agree through my limited experience in, in, in what you just said. Um, you know, I, I can relate that to personal experiences in places like Jamaica in, in India, for instance, where I've gotten to hang out with locals and it absolutely just warm, amazing experiences and, and never felt, you know, I, I believe I exercised intelligence and, and caution first. And then later it was just, it was nice. Um, are, are you are you of the opinion then that most people for and I, I'm not asking you for an endorsement or a guarantee to this idea, but most people typically are are safe in most places as long as they handle themselves in the manner you suggested. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't claim to be an expert so. on any on any place I travel to. I don't say I know more than the locals, right? 
So that's my bridge to meeting locals, right? Secondly, I'm going to reach out to people that can help me understand something, not just the tout at the airport, you know, for a ride into town or something. And thirdly, if you're with local people, they're actually concerned for your safety. They, they want you to be happy and healthy and, and go home in one piece. And even if you're on the front lines or whether you're in a bar in Mexico, typically that's the safest bet. Now, if you go to some cocktail review and you stagger home drunk through the back, you know, you're going to get waylaid, right? So I'm just yeah, saying staying in the tourist loop is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. Sure. Sure. So, so what would you say of the many, many places you've been have been some, just maybe a couple or a few of like the warmest and most welcoming places that people probably wouldn't expect them to be that to begin with? Well, the tribal areas of Pakistan, I, I have a very funny story about that. Uh, Afghanistan, places where the, the cultural gap seems so wide and you'll never figure out the language or you know how to, those people tend to, to bend over backwards to make you feel at home and uh, i'll tell you a quick story so i was in the tribal areas of pakistan which borders afghanistan and i was taking a bus and we're talking about the back end of nowhere up in the mountains and this nice young guy said hey would you like to come to my house for dinner and i'm like yeah why not so uh, I didn't know that he lived at the top of a mountain that was about five miles away, but you know, fine. Once you're in, once you're in trouble, you might as well get all the way in trouble. And I remember there's a lot of kidnapping. <laughs> so it's almost like, right. So first thing I'm thinking, of course, yes. What's the worst case scenario? Well, follow some nice young man back to his mountain hideout for dinner. <laughs> and on the way there, the guy said, well, I'm an insurgent. I, you know, I'm fighting for uh, this uh, group and uh, you know, and I want you to meet my people and da-da-da-da. And I'm thinking, okay, this is insane, right? This is insane. This is exactly what you shouldn't do. So I climb up to this mountain, and uh, they make a fabulous meal for me. Like, they go out of their way, right? And people start walking over the ridge lines from other villages. And these are very poor people, you know, very simple farmers or shepherds. And I said, well, what can I do? for these people because i you know giving them money would be kind of crass so i said hey let me take a picture of everybody who came over you know just as a, as a thank you when i get back home i'll make some prints and send them to him so the guy wrote a very elaborate address down i said thank you i got home to my office i told my assistant hey um take these pictures and make them into jumbo prints and she got it wrong she made 24 by 36 inch prints you know like poster size prints <laughs> And I thought, eh, you know, the hell with it. What the hell? Send it. Send it by FedEx. It was some extraordinary amount of money, like $500. And I said, okay, well, the heck with it. Um, I didn't even know they had FedEx that went up in the mountains. Anyways, about half a year later, I get this letter. And it's very carefully written. And I know exactly who wrote it. It was the one young kid in the village that spoke English. And, you know, that sort of very perfect writing that kids do when they practice calligraphy. And it said, you know, Robert, you are a prince amongst men, and you will be welcome in our village as royalty. Anytime you come, you are the finest person on earth, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that nobody ever takes these people's pictures. They live their entire lives without having an image of them. And so I imagine these people with a 24 by 36 like a professional portrait hanging on the wall and how good that must have meant. To, it must have blown a boy. I can, I can only imagine, man, I'm trying to picture it. I mean, yeah, who would ever go out of the way to do something like that for them? That's, I get it. Have so you I been felt back? good. And, you know, you back? and I'm just, no. <laughs> so I'm sure they're all dead now. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that that would be the movie part. That would be the BS movie version of my life, right? You, you go uh, back and you would, you, would meet would on, you would meet on the beach and have a big hug, right? Yes. No, right. but the bottom line is that that's the kind of thing that makes me feel really good. And and uh, and I said, I didn't plan that day. I was kind of like grumpy about how much money it costs to make all these 24 by 36. And then I realized I changed all these people's lives. They had met this stranger would hiked up to a little mountain retreat and some suddenly sent them these beautiful photographs. And I thought that's, that's a nice thing to do. 
That, it's a very nice thing to do. You know, I remember years ago, and, and, and I want to like go back a few decades for a reason. So I've got a question to ask you based on, on some references you've made, and I'll get to that in a moment. 30-some years ago, um, I, for whatever reason, decided to get more, probably more, get a backpack and go cruise down to Baja, Mexico, of all things. And I landed in La Paz, and I, I had a guidebook because people actually use books in those days and hitchhiked up and down, um, you know, places like La Paz and Bolohe and Laredo or San Jose del Cabo, if you're familiar with those areas. And been there many times. So didn't, I didn't really have an itinerary or, or even expectations. I had like, I think it was an old Frommers or, or Fodor's travel book, whichever it was. And I was in a bus station, I, I think in La Paz it was, and these two really pretty blonde girls came running up to me and they said, are, do you speak English? And I said, yes. They go, where are you going? I said, San Jose del Cabo. And they looked at each other, nodded and said, can, can we go with you? And I said, sure. <laughs> I thought, you know, it seemed like one of those fantasies come, come to life. And uh, <laughs> sure, sure you can. They said, good, because we have been getting harassed endlessly by the locals here. And I said, Okay. And, you know, my thoughts were they're blonde, they're pretty, they're probably not exercising situational awareness or not, but maybe, maybe this is all my benefit now or going to be to my detriment. I don't know. But um, we took the bus and we got off the bus and we found a uh, we found a store. We bought a case of beer. We went down to the beach and we found a palapa, you know, where they, they have the um, the thatched, uh, the thatched hut mm -hmm. attached to the pole. And we kind of set up camp and that was, we were going to stay there. And... These two very intimidating, big Mexican gentlemen came out, and, and I have passable Spanish. So I can communicate a little bit, and basically they said, what the hell are you guys doing here? And w where this ended up was we were on their property. It was their beach because, as you know, places in the world, people own their beaches, and we, we, we ended up being asked to purchase dinner in their home. So we sat at this table with this family of what these two guys were part of had this amazing local dinner. Um, I think we paid them three bucks each or something like that. And then they, <laughs> and then they insisted on driving us back to the beach and setting us up under their palapa. And that that's kind of been my experience of, of the world. And I, I just, I don't know why I brought this up. I, I'm hearing your story about being in a place where I think people would be really frightened to go to and have any idea what, what to experience. And, you know, mine, my experiences, again, limited, have, have been the opposite of what I think people would expect. So my, my question to you out of all of this is somebody listening to you right now that maybe goes to Cabo, you know, as their big adventure, they now want to go adventuring. Where do they start? What do you advise? They have, they have no well, reference. I would say reference. I would suggest their own city. Um, you know, a lot of us have never been on the other side of the tracks, right? We, we think about that place and our place and uh, people will say, oh, I went to this little jazz club, you know, in this rundown neighborhood and I had a really good time. It's like you kind of have to start with your own misperceptions of your own neighborhood sometimes. And if you want to travel, I mean, I would say start with countries where they speak passable English because sometimes people freak out if they don't have language skills or they, they're not comfortable with picking up a few basic words. Um, you know, some of the places that I recommend are really dull and boring, like Syria or, you know, places where they literally have a tourism industry inside of a war zone. You can go to Damascus. People are extremely friendly. Uh, you'd be amazed how close the front lines are. But the point is that you can go to places where it seems like it should be scary, but it's actually quite safe, as opposed to places where they appear to be safe, but they're actually quite dangerous. So so right now, sitting here on Maui, I want to go somewhere for my vacation this year, if you want to call it that vacation or have an experience. I, I could go online. I could Google travel to Damascus and come up with something that, that might be a fit. Well, example, you remember how many people didn't want to go to Cuba, right? They were terrified of, of going to Cuba. Yep. All the Canadians were down there. All the Europeans were there. And then suddenly they lifted the travel ban. It's like, hey, Cuba's kind of cool. It's cheap. People are friendly. <laughs> you know, they're not trying to kill us. And then we put up the travel ban again. Uh, 
you have to kind of get into Syria sideways. But my point is people go to Iran, for example, and they're like blown away. Like, look how nice the people are, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, why did you think they were going to kill you? And, and, you know, when I wrote that book, World's Most Dangerous Places, I put in places that were incredibly safe, but yet considered to be very dangerous. I remember that well, of course. Yes. Yeah. Of course. So all I'm saying is, is adventure is you have to set your own comfort level, right? I, I can't do that for you. So uh, if, if you think Africa is kind of wild and crazy, um, you know, don't go to Kenya. Like, don't go to a place that everybody goes to. Pick a place that you think is intriguing but is a little bit outside your comfort zone and go there. That, I think that's a great answer. And, and, and on that, I want to mention, uh, I want to mention to, to our listeners first that Robert is one of those guests who has in, in our, in our pre-interview discussions, never once mentioned anything he wanted to push or plug. So I love that. So, but I want to, I want to do a quick one for you then, if, if you don't mind, <laughs> uh, you were a moment ago saying, you you put um, you included countries in the world's most dangerous places that may not seem too dangerous. So, because I love this book so much, and because I took it off my shelf from upstairs, I actually have it in my hands right now. And I, I want to if those of you out there listening, whether you're planning on traveling somewhere, you know, dangerous or exotic or or not, um, I want to recommend the world's most dangerous places to you because. It is, without question, one of the single most fascinating and involving reads I've uh, I've ever had the good fortune to encounter. So uh, I know Robert, you didn't ask, um, but, but I had to do it. World's most dangerous places by Robert Young Pelton. Um, absolutely one of my top five favorite books of all time. Just wanted to mention that. Um, well, if you're going to plug something, I should mention that you know I wrote my first fiction book. I wrote a novel called Raven which you can buy on Amazon. And that's the first time I've ever written fiction, but it's about a kid that goes on an ill-fated canoe trip. So it's based on a lot of real events, but of course written as fiction. Um, I don't do the same thing over and over again. So I try to be creative and whatever. And one of the funny things about doing the world's most dangerous places is like painting a bridge, right? You start at one end and by the time you get to the other end, you got to start all over again and uh, start thinking, okay, what happened in the six months or year that I wrote the book? One of the things that's really intriguing to me nowadays is we are seeing like a major change in global structure. And for many years, these wars went on and on and on and on. And, you know, it's like writing the same book every year. But, uh, you know, I feel that we're heading into a very different era in which young people are kind of scared of traveling. There, there isn't that appeal to slapping on a backpack and going to Mexico and doing something sort of, you know, wild and free, Jack Kerouac style. And there's just a lot of disinterest in foreign nations because it's, we just, we get indulged or not indulged, but we get engulfed with bad news from these places. So, so people in their twenties, you know, the ones I talk to, they don't have that fire in their belly for getting on the road and doing stuff. I mean, if you say to somebody, hey, have you ever tried hitchhiking? They look at you like you're crazy. Oh, right. You know, I from Vancouver to, to Panama. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, uh, and so the point is that we've lost a lot of that adventure. You know, it, it, it's a really strange conundrum, man. It's like, you know, we always hear how connected the world is now. Yet yeah. it's 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 really almost the opposite. Um, you know, dur during this interview, you've and I picked up on this. Okay, so you mentioned that you printed photos and sent them, you know, across the world. You mentioned mm -hmm. looking for a job in a phone book. You mm -hmm. you mentioned writing something on a typewriter, and yes. <laughs> you know, and I grew up in that era too, man. And like I got to tell you, it's like I, I would imagine. I don't know that the world's most dangerous places is available on Kindle, but I would much rather pick up the book and read it. I just like having a book in my hands. So do, do you think that the, do you think that connectivity or what the world calls connectivity now, this, this, this crazy thing we call the internet and satellite cell phones and WhatsApp and all that, has that, is that eroding the, the human spirit for adventure somehow? No. So there's a lot of scientific work written about this, you know, sort of beginning with Marshall McLuhan talking about the global village and 
most more recent stuff talking about the de-emotionalization of electronic communications. So, for example, you and I were talking right now. Right now, we're talking over the internet, right? I can't yes. see you. I don't. I don't know what you had for lunch. I can't read your facial expressions. I could be saying something really embarrassing, and I wouldn't notice it in your face. I could say something to make you laugh, and I wouldn't notice that. Um, we are stripping away a lot of the really critical uh, decision-making facilities that humans need, right? And we see it in TV where people have makeup and they dye their hair and they project an image, but we don't actually see them on the toilet having a crap, right? We, we don't know what they smell like. We don't know what other people think of them because we're only given a, just a little slice, right? And it goes both ways. So I, I told you about Syria. You're like, oh, what, why would I be a tourist in Damascus? Well, because you only get a little narrow slice of, of Syria, right? Which is the war side. You never get the, you know, come to our nice country. So what the digital era has done is created wallpaper around us, but it's fictitious, right? So, for example, if I went on social media right now and I said that you had red hair, for example, it would be very difficult for you to convince people that you didn't have red hair because they'd say, well, I went on Google, it says you have red hair. And you'd be like, but I don't. Like, where did you get that from? Like, so we're seeing an era where it's very easy to poison ideas and it's very easy to project false ideas. This ties in directly to adventure because you, you, you said you went to Baja. Baja is the site of both horrendous killings and also fantastic off-roading and fishing and happy, friendly people. I mean, beautiful beaches, whales, you know. So where do you get your slice, your little porthole that made you go to Mexico, you see? And this is the problem with having too much, right? Like, like an avalanche of information. Yeah, yeah. I think I tripped across a actual book in a travel store in a pretty small travel section. Right, I hear what you're saying. So the, so, the so, choices were limited. So when I wrote The World's Most Dangerous Places, it wasn't enough to write about a country and what, you know, what's going on in the history. You know, I, I made it funny so it was engaging and not threatening. And then I dropped in these stories of what it's like to be in those places, which scared the hell out of people. So I tried to put the, the widest emotional spectrum. And then I did a TV series, you know, for Discovery for many years of not so much the war, but how I got into the war and how people helped me and what's going on around me and whatever. Like the gestalt of trying to get into these dangerous places and meeting these people killing each other had never been done before. So, yeah, you, you were absolutely in, in the, not and you were the originator in, in the genre. There's no doubt about it. And if, if people want to watch the series, I know all the videos are available on, on YouTube and online. What would be the yeah. best way to, to watch your series? Well, just go uh, Robert Young Pelton. And then uh, I think you, you put in DPTV and uh, you'll, you'll see these things pop up. Or, you know, I did one in South Sudan. Like one of the things I'm proudest of is that when, uh, when they created Vice, which is a Canadian idea, they approached me very early on. They said, hey, would you be one of our guys, right? And uh, I said, well, how much do you pay? Well, we don't pay anything. I said, so why would I do something I'm doing now, making lots of money doing on TV and print and magazines, and, and work with you guys, who was basically you know, a bunch of well-intentioned but kind of buffoony guys who wanted to go to dangerous places. So you know, I, I never worked with Vice. And then when they became big, I started getting all these phone calls. Well, you know, we got a guy stuck in Somalia. Can you help us? Or how do you get into this country? And so-and-so did this, and I don't know how to fix that. So I finally called him up and said, dude, you need to hire me, and I'll show the kids how it's done. I mean, you got to remember, you know, I've been the guy that goes to war zones for, you know, 20, 30 years at this point. And so I went to them, and I said, I want to do a story about a war that's just starting and I want to do it in real time, and I want to do it as a print magazine, and I want to do it as a web event, and I want to do it as a documentary. And they're like, oh, bullshit, it can't be done, right? I said, watch me. So I got on a plane, and I went straight into the most horrific war at that time, which was South Sudan. And I was the first person to film the White Army massacring people in this town called Malakal. And I came back with the footage, and they were like, Oh my God, right? So I said, let's do this. We got two weeks to write a 50,000 word magazine, like the entire edition, no, nothing else except me writing about my trip and the whole history of Africa. And let's cut this documentary together. And the premise of this thing 
was me taking back a lost boy or a war, you know, sort of a child soldier back to his country to try to fix it, to meet the guy who ordered the murder of his father. And it's, it's the most screwed up idea you could ever think of, but it's so engaging, you know, to go backwards instead of the usual structure for a documentary or whatever. And to actually see the violence and the people around us, you know, it's, it's like, it's hard to believe that you can film that, but it's, that's what I do. So I think that's the kind of thing that makes people say, wow, I can do this. You know, it, it, I don't need a 747 with a bunch of security guys and camera crews. Like, literally, I can just take one step at a time, find someone who wants to go back there, go back with them and, and watch it. It's called Saving South Sudan. Just type that in plus my name. And I guarantee you, you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to endorse that because I watched this last week in preparation for this interview. And uh, folks, it's everything Robert is saying and more. And and when you say DP, uh, DPTV, that's dangerous places Place television, television, correct? Good, yeah. good. So we, we, we talked. I'm sorry, go ahead, please. I said they're free. I put them up so people can watch them because they're, they're unique documents in history, Liberia, Afghanistan, you name it. I was with special forces, you know, on horseback when they first went into Afghanistan. Uh, you know, things that have never been recorded in history. So I was there. I was the guy hanging out. Yeah, it's, it's amazing getting getting to be part of that. I think I mentioned to you, I'm interviewing a guy next, next week named Emmanuel Jahl. He's one of uh, what they call the lost, lost boys of the Sudan. And... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he had watched his watched his mother and sister literally raped to death before his eyes, and became a uh, was was forced into being a child soldier, addicted to their their drug of choice over there. And all these years later, has really come out the other side. He's a, you know a peace activist and recording artist, and and, and I mentioned this because you know you, you and I were talking a lot previous to this about people facing some truly horrific things, and and then either making it out the other side or, or not making it out the other side. And I know you can relate to, um, to Emmanuel's story. We talked about that. Uh, you also told me in our pre-interview that I could, I could ask you about anything. Um, I know that thankfully and blessedly you, you have not hit your own rock bottom. And, and I wish you, I, I wish that that is the theme for the rest of your life. Of course, I, I want to ask you about a, a fellow discovery channel star. And I believe he was uh, a friend or at least acquaintance of yours, um, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, were you acquainted with Anthony? No, I, I started at the network the same time he did at the Travel Channel. And he did a, a show. Uh, we may have bumped into each other, but I was busy doing my thing and he was busy doing his thing. And, and more power to him. He's a, he's a very talented or was a very talented guy. But the difference is um, I pulled a ripcord. When my friends, my special forces friends were hitting over before the war in Iraq, I had an eight-show, no-cut contract from Discovery on my kitchen table, plus a celebrity endorsement fee contract, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to make the decision, you know, do I re-up my TV career? And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to think about it, so I'm going to go into the war. And so I disappeared into the Iraq war. I bought a red Bentley and, and disappeared and... Uh, mapped out mass graves but the point is i realized by taking that break that i was becoming a caricature of myself in other words i had to keep doing what i was doing to be myself and i wasn't necessarily in control of who chose what i was now anthony was i think a very talented fellow just in, in being a human being right you know forget the cooking part uh he connected with people he enjoyed traveling but he had to do that all the time you know and that's a hell of a stress level. And it's got nothing to do with cooking, right? It's got nothing to do with enjoying your life or kicking back. And when I heard that he had a great meal with a friend of his, I went upstairs and hung himself with a bathrobe. I thought, wow, that is like every story I've heard from my military friends of people who had just gone past the point of knowing where they were. Wow. So you, that's, that's powerful. You answer, you answer the question. How, how does that happen to, to someone like that? You know, Robert, I remember reading years ago, you know, and it's before I even opened my mind at all to the ideas of, of people struggling or, or, or even mental illness, if you will. I remember reading a People magazine article about Alicia Keys, you know, the, the beautiful, amazing mm-hmm. sure. multi-dimensional pop singer. And she had written about 
how she had hit rock bottom. And because she had fallen so far, she had to jump on her private jet with only her personal chef and head out to her secluded luxury villa in Thailand. And I remember reading that at the time with such judgment and saying, okay, that does not sound like rock bottom to me. Um, and you have Anthony Bourdain, who, you know, good looking guy, apparently had a beautiful, loving relationship. He's got money. He's got fame. Um, and it's just, you're saying a guy like that. And, and, and I want people out there to hear this from you because I know you've seen about every type of person there is in probably every type of challenging situation. If, if you start to see it become too much, what do you do? What, what could Anthony have done that, that would have been different? Well, I, I just want to make a point. So I spend a lot of time in combat with very professional people, right? And these people have given their lives to serving the nation, and they've done multiple tours, you know, 11, 12, 15 tours, whatever. These are the kind of people that get a phone call or a text saying, you know, Bill just shot himself, you know, like for no reason at all, perfectly healthy guy, whatever. Uh, we're seeing more and more of this in the military. You know, we're seeing more and more of this because of stress. And I, I, I could never fathom that, right? So I'm not an expert or even qualified to comment on it. But a friend of mine set up a thing called Rubicon, uh, Team Rubicon, specifically to help uh, ex-Marines, ex-military folks to deal with PTSD and to deal with depression and, and feelings of worthlessness and adjusting to civilian life. And even one of his close friends took his own life, you know. So it's it's part of an, an epidemic that I don't understand, but I see it because it hits me from multiple points. Now, whether it's Anthony Bourdain or whether it's somebody I was in combat with or whatever, it's there's something out there that's leading people down a dark path very quickly and they decide to take their life. And there's all kinds of people saying, well, that's because they had, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury or they had uh, depression and they weren't dealing with it, whatever. But suicide is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And, you know, the opposite of life is despair, right? It's, it's not wanting to live life. And I've always been filled with joy about life. And even in my darkest days when I was, you know, kidnapped and marched at gunpoint at night to the jungles, I've never felt like I was on the losing end of life, you know? So I just, I urge people that if anybody is ideating, in other words, mentioning suicide, talking about depression, feeling hopelessness, not embracing adventure and, and life and family and friends, uh, reach out to them, you know, and, and, and try to deal with whatever it is that's causing that. It could be chemical, it could be emotional, it could be financial. But uh, again, I, I, I just feel so naive because I've never had that experience or feeling. Yeah, yeah, and I know that, you, and you had made that clear, but at the same time, I think you have such perspective on, on the world and people that I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, and, and, I, and I thank you for your thoughts on that. So the, the answer is, there, there was, uh, there's, look, I, I'm not an expert either of anything, but, but to, to me, what I'm hearing is the answer is always know there is another way and to reach out. Well, think about it this way, too. So you know, I took drugs once in my life. I was I was in love with a woman. I wanted to go see her, and I stayed at a halfway house for drug dealers, and and uh, they would just throw things on the table, and then I would take them, and then I would wake up like a week later and saying, "Oh yeah, you did this, you did that." I know how addictive highs can be, right? And when you say rock bottom, you're also saying the word high, right? Yes, and correct. The extreme opposite, yes. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. You know, I don't get, I don't, I don't bungee jump. I don't do any sort of adventure sports or whatever. But um, maybe that's the cautionary tale. If there's a high, then there's also a low. I'm, I'm, I'm a 50% guy. I operate at 50%. You know, I don't run too fast. I don't run. I don't walk too slow. I don't get too excited, but I don't get too angry. Um, you know, moderation. I love that. You're mo you're moderate. Who who would have thunk, man? Who would have thought that the well, world's greatest adventure was moderate? But that makes all—it really makes all the sense in the world, truly. Well, so who, when you're in a house being bracketed by mortars and there's a drone trying to kill you, who do you want to ask the questions of? The guy who's screaming, running around in circles, or the guy that's sobbing in the corner, or the guy that's just kind of there, just mellow, analyzing, right. focusing? So I'm, I'm just saying that when we say rock bottom, what you're really talking about is serotonin and sort of you know mental chemicals. 
that that can push you up and can push you down. Yep. And, right. and there's all kinds of scientific studies about why the brain gets excited and why the brain gets depressed. I, I'm not going to lecture anybody on drugs, on cocaine, or all these um, you know pleasure-inducing drugs. But I do believe we live in a generation where we think we can moderate or increase or decrease our emotions. And sometimes that's got to come from inside, right? That that can't come from a drug, unless you have a medical problem, and then of course you've got to deal with it with a doctor. That's but different, yes, don't, of course. Don't ever, yeah, don't ever look at what I do as an attempt to get high. That's all I'm saying, right? I'm taking your advice, and I'm actually meditating on it while I'm listening, which is be, be find find my own moderation, and 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 I love that. And I I am getting the signal from our producers that we're. We're actually um, we're beyond the top of the hour. I would love to go another couple with you, but we're we're getting close. So I do a, I do have one more question for you, sure. and this mm -hmm. kind of turns the idea of, of moderation back on its ear. But what you've done so much, you you as they say, it sounds a little uh, cliche, perhaps. You've been there and you've done that. What, what excites you these days? Ah, uh, well, still being alive. That's 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 a great thing to wake up to every day, and. Uh, Knowing that my ridiculous background, my experience with conflict and jihadi groups and death and combat is actually of value to other people. In other words, when I was younger, I, I honestly didn't think how long I would live, as, as we all do, of course, because we're going to live forever. Um, when you get past 50, you start thinking, well, you know, should I do this or should I do that? You know, I'm 64 now. And I wake up every morning with a smile and I play with my dogs and I plan my next trip to my next war zone. I write my next article or whatever. Um, I really cherish the, the volumes of knowledge that are sitting in my head and, and in my experiences. That's, I think that's my greatest reward. That's uh, I, I love that. So you, you appreciate what you have and what each day brings. That that's that's something I aspire to live. Words I aspire to live by every day. Uh, Robert, I, I want to thank you so much for for your time today. It, it's been an absolute honor. Um, I uh, I, I want to ask you if I'm in San Diego, if maybe I can come say hello and, and get a, a signed copy of World's Most Dangerous Places. I don't want to put you on the spot, so you don't have to answer that now. But you might be in Somalia or who knows, right? But um, well, just, you know, if you want to know what I'm doing, just Google my name, Robert Young Pelton, and uh, all kinds of articles, interviews, stuff will pop up. I just did a thing for Recoil Magazine, which is a gun magazine. Uh, I'm doing documentaries. I mean, I'm, I'm busy doing a lot of things, but I'm happy to share ideas, and I think what you're doing is good, too, is that the more we share ideas and, and change people's thought patterns, maybe the more options and choices they have in their life. And, and I'm just happy that I made it to the wisdom part of my life, you know? Uh, and I, I am too. I'm, I'm glad you're you're still with us. I look forward to following your adventures. I can also do that on comebackalive.com. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, so I'm, and people are always beating me over the head over Twitter because I'm always uh, giving yep. people's opinions that they don't necessarily ask for, but I enjoy <laughs> uh, communicating with people. Uh, that's, Robert, again, thank you. It's uh, Rick Bassman here with Robert Young Pelton on uh, Talking Tough on the two-man power trip podcast empire. Once again, my appreciating gratitude to Robert for, for being our guest today on Talking Tough. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.